We all want to do work that we love. And as leaders, entrepreneurs, and employees, wouldn't it be great to create workplaces where work feels like play? Where people are tuned in to the changes going on in the world around them. Where they're constantly learning, spotting new opportunities, and taking action to go after them. I'm Amanda Satilli, and this is the Fearless Growth Podcast, where my guests and I will explore the mindsets and choices that lead you and your organization to outstanding performance. Today, my guests are Ken Blanchard and Randy Conley. Ken is the co-author of more than 65 books, including the iconic One Minute Manager, and he's one of the uh, Amazon's top 25 best-selling authors of all time. He's co-founder with his wife, Marjorie, of the Ken Blanchard Companies. Randy works with Ken as Vice President of Global Professional Services and Trust Practice Leader. He works globally to help organizations build trust and was named a top 100 leadership speaker by Inc.com. I just read their book, Simple Truths of Leadership, which is a recent release, and I loved it. It was so simple and easy to understand, but it was also comprehensive and it was insightful. It wasn't bland at all. So um, I really recommend that you get this book. It's an easy read. I think I actually read it in one sitting, which I was very impressed with myself. Um, so welcome, Randy and Ken. Thanks so much for joining me today. Good to be with you. Yeah. Thank you, Amanda, for that nice welcome. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I'm just wondering, what was it about either the state of humanity or your own state of mind that led you to go into organizational development and leadership? And Ken, for you, that was way back in at least 1979, maybe even earlier, and Randy, maybe more recently. Um, but what what was it that drew you to this field? Well, my uh, interest started with my father, who retired as an admiral in the Navy, and when I was in seventh grade, I won the president of the seventh grade in New Rochelle, New York. And uh, and I came home. I was all pumped up. My father said, Ken, now that you're president, your leadership training begins. Don't ever use your position because great leaders are great because people trust and respect them, not because they have power. And uh, so he was kind of my guide. And so I was interested all the way back then in leadership and what made it tick and how did you uh, can you make a difference in uh, people? And then I've always been interested in simple truths. My uh, mission statement starts with, I want to be a, uh, you know, a, a guide of simple truths. And, and, uh, uh, but I found I would talk to people and they'd say, I love your books and all. And I say, well, what have you uh, used lately? And they go, blah, 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 you know? And so I said, we got to make it even simpler for these folks, you know? And so I've been into servant leadership uh, in the last decade or so, and and Randy and I talked, and s servant leadership and trust go hand in hand, don't they, Randy? Yeah, they sure do. And for me, Amanda, my interest in leadership, I think, really sparked back in my teenage years. I was very involved in my church, and I uh, was encouraged to take on several leadership roles, uh, as a young adult, and that just started a lifelong interest in being able to positively influence others. And as I uh, got started in my career, um, I was fortunate enough to be led to the Ken Blanchard Companies. I've been with working with Ken uh, for over 25 years, 
And it's just become part of who I am. It's a way for me to do good in the world and express my mission. And uh, there's no place else I'd rather be. Fantastic. So if you look at the state of the world today and maybe think out for the next 30 years at what you anticipate might be happening in the world, is there anything that you're adjusting in your mind about where your priorities lie with respect to enhancing leadership or trust or anything else that you're working on? Well, my big concern is that whether you can start with Washington or anywhere else is that you got so much win-lose attitude um, among leaders, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, and all that. And we've really moved uh, in our own thinking from top-down leadership to what we call side-by-side leadership. And we think that that leaders and, and their people ought to be working together uh, and that uh, whatever leaders do, it ought to be in the best interests of their people, not in their just their best interests, because that's self-serving leadership. So that's why we've kind of gotten excited about servant leadership, which is about you're there to serve rather than to be served. Ken and I firmly believe that the world is in desperate need for a new model of leadership. You know, we have seen the results clearly of self-centered leadership, you know, of leadership of power, love of power and love of status. And um, and it's not working for us. You know, it's simply not working. The best leaders, the best organizations that we see and, and research supports this overwhelmingly, their servant letter, servant leader led organizations. They're run by organizations where leaders view themselves as working side by side with their people, supporting their people to be the best versions of themselves. Uh, and so that's that's what we're all about. And we're hoping that our book makes a little dent in that universe uh, to help people be more serving rather than self-serving. That's all we can do, right? Just try to make little dents where we can. I would imagine that many of your clients are already kind of bought into the servant leadership idea and you help them manifest it or make it true and train their folks. But what do we do about organizations who don't get it yet, who are still in the command and control world or who are still worried about their own profitability, their own incentive pay and all of those kinds of things and and haven't really gotten to the point where they see it the way you do how can we influence them? Uh, a prayer helps. Uh, but, uh, you know, but the other thing is to try to get somebody in the organization who gets it and can start to apply and use it with their people. Because if they do, they're going to get great results and people are going to start looking at them and saying, you know, God, your your group is really performing well. What's the secret? And they can start to slowly t- uh, share the word. But it's, it's going to take time uh, because effective uh, use of servant leadership is best when it starts at the top. Yeah. And to build on what Ken said, I actually just wrote a blog article about this last week, Amanda, and sort of building off, you know, Gandhi's famous quote, be the change you want to see in the world. I think you have to be the servant leader. You have to be the trust that you want to see in the world. Because at the end of the day, that's the only thing that each of us has control over is our own attitudes, beliefs, and actions. And uh, if leaders can focus on creating a circle of influence within the team that they lead, it grows outward from there. 
uh, as Ken said, ideally, we would have leaders at the top of an organization sort of make that proclamation and decision and filter it down. And it can also work from the bottom up. If people just take a grassroots effort, uh, apply these principles in their own life, and if they're successful, others will start to see that. They'll start to look and say, wow, look at Amanda's team. Her team's like really crushing it. What, what's going on there, right? And then that allows you to then start spreading the good news within the organization. Really good point. What do you think about the concentration of wealth? There is a dis- big disparity, a big, much bigger disparity than there was before between the pay of CEOs and other executives and the average employee. And I got to think that might erode trust, but what do we do about it? Like it's, we're, we're already there where, uh, uh, can we, can you unwind that <laughs> or, or do you even want to? I think it only gets unwound if, if, Top managers realize it and start to really share the wealth more consistently. We're constantly in our own companies thinking, how how can we share with everybody? So if the company wins, everybody wins, not just the, the owners or the top management uh, group. But uh, it's uh, when you see companies, people ask me who applies and uses the concepts we teach. I said only the leading companies like Southwest Airlines and the airline business, uh, Wegmans in the grocery business, Nordstrom's in retail, Disney in entertainment, you know, uh, Synovus in the financial services uh, business. Uh, you know, I mean, they all have had leaders over time that realize that it's we, not me, when we want to be leaders. You know, if you think back to e- even the famous principle from the Bible about the love of money being the root of all evil. It's not that money itself is the issue. It's the love of it and and sort of the value that people place on it. And one of the simple truths in our book is related to power, but I think it applies to wealth as well. And that is the best use of power is in service to others. I think the best use of wealth is in service to others. And when you see leaders and organizations sharing the wealth in a way to foster the growth and well-being of all their stakeholders, that's that's where the magic happens, right? That's where good things happen versus the, you know, the controlling of wealth, just like power, you know, hoarding power, wanting more power to serve your own self-interest. That's where we go off track. So I, I think if we can shift our mindsets as leaders to, and, and this is very servant leader-like, how can I be of service to others? How can I use my wealth, my power, my position, my title, my influence in service of others? That, that's the key mental shift I think we have to make. I think that's really powerful. I, I like your idea that it's the love of money that's the problem. I see that in my own life. You know, you start chasing money too much, you're not happy. And and that can go on for years. And suddenly you realize, oh, that wasn't so smart. I didn't end up where I wanted to be. Right, right. It's it's not the uh, fulfilling, the, the ultimate fulfillment that we hope it will be. You know, we all have probably seen that bumper sticker, you know, he who has the most toys wins, you know, or, or he who dies with the most toys wins. Well, 
you're still dead and those toys aren't going anywhere with you, right? <laughs> so it's like, it's more about the journey, the pursuit of the good work you're doing, you know, the wealth, the money, the status, the the fame, all of that is sort of just the applause for doing good work. You know, that's that's not what we should be chasing, though. Well, I'm sure you all are aware of the 2019 business roundtable policy that came out saying that instead of, uh, you know, the purpose of a corporation being to serve the shareholders, that they were shifting to, say, all stakeholders, because you just mentioned, Randy, uh, all stakeholders. But it seems to me that maybe in these COVID times, that tension between the good of the community and the good of the employees sometimes comes into a hard conflict. I'm not sure if I'm seeing it right, but um, just a simple example might be, um, you know, do you require all employees to wear masks even though their customers aren't because you believe that that's going to prevent the spread of disease or something? Have you have you had to wrestle with any of those issues with your clients or is those kind of getting sorted out on their own? Well, it's interesting. You know, we we say that uh, the great companies, their number one customer is their people. And so you need to try to get your people to do what's best for them. And in the process, uh, they'll go out of the way to take care of your customers, your clients, uh, you know, and uh, those people have become raving fans of your organization that takes care of the bottom line it you know profit is the applause you get for taking care of your people so they'll take care of your customers and i i think that uh, as you look at the use of masks and all it's it's really what's best for the for the most people uh and uh this whole thing of demanding that you do this it's you know let's let's talk what's what's best for us and what's best for our customers and can we come to some kind of uh, agreement. So it's not, I'm saying everybody's got to do this. You know, that's what that, I think that's what really upsets people. If we're, if we would argue about, you know, we're not going to force you, but here's the data, you know, on what's good for others. Right. Um, so I'm curious about China and I don't know if you all have clients that you serve in China. I'm sure that you have companies that have major ties to China, either through supplier relationships or many other ways. But do you think there's any new management techniques emerging out of China that we can learn from? Are they doing stuff differently than us that maybe might be uh, worth looking at? Well, we have uh, we have partners in China who represent us in country there. And what we've seen is there is a thirst, there's a hunger for Western ideas on um, management and leadership, you know, really valuing the the contributions that people make. Um, so I'm encouraged by that. You know, that's a good thing. So I, I think there's a, a real openness to those Western ideas. I was just chatting with one of our colleagues, Drea Zagarmi. He's one of our founding associates with Ken who helped found the company, and Dre has been one of our leading researchers, and he was sharing with me that much of the cutting-edge academic research is coming from not just China, but other Asian countries, that there's just this real uh, appetite for pushing into new frontiers of, of leadership research and, you know, human dynamics. So I, I think it's a very, you know, active area that 
that is, um, you know, really ripe for growth. And I think, uh, Amanda, one of our exciting things about this book, The Simple Truths of Leadership, is that it really kind of summarizes what we have found over the years to be most effective. And it's already uh, starting to be translated in a number of countries, and we really feel it will have an impact in the Far East. But the people who get the book say, wow, it's really powerful because it's, you know, it's easy to read because on one page is a concept like the key to, uh, the, you know, creating a great organization is to catch people doing something right and accent the positive. And then the other page talks about why people aren't doing that initially. And then in the bottom, it says how to make common sense, common practice. And it's, you know, 26 on servant leadership and 26 on, on trust. And so we really feel that uh, we're hoping for dialogue around the world on these concepts because people can take them one at a time, few at a time and talk with their people. And so, uh, but uh, the more we, we kind of try to help each other rather than attack each other, you know, I mean, a lot of people say, why do we even go to China for the Olympics and all? I mean, I wish that we had that Olympic attitude where you see those athletes all hugging each other, no matter what country they're from and congratulating each other and high-fiving each other, you know, rather than sort of saying, you know, you're the enemy, this is that. Right. I love to see that too. And even if you look back, you know, decades ago when Dr. Deming helped Japan and then we learned so much from Japan and then, you know, you got to keep that iterative process of learning from each other, bringing stuff back from other places and applying it here and sending them your stuff and seeing how it flies there. Uh, it's really, really good to see. Um, so I was wondering if you all have any point of view on what some people are calling the crisis of anxiety among young people. You know, from a young person's perspective, maybe they just see a lot of stressful things in the world. And, you know, now that I've lived a long time, I've realized the world has always been kind of stressful. <laughs> It's just different stressors, but but there's no doubt that there is more anxiety among young people now than there used to be. How do you advise clients to deal with that, or do you do you touch on it at all? One of the things I've seen, Amanda, and it goes back to one of the reasons we design the book the way it is, is getting people focused back on simple truths, simple principles right? There is so much noise in society. We have so many distractions, right? Our cell phones are built-in distraction machines that keep us occupied 24 hours a day if we would let it. And um, mental health has been sort of one of my um, areas of interest based on personal life experiences and family experiences. And so I've, I've volunteered with a a local mental health organization, and it, you're you're spot on. There are so many challenges in today's culture. There's so much noise that I think the best thing we can do as leaders is keep redirecting people back to common sense principles. Let's go back to the foundation. What are the few guiding principles that really can focus our attention eliminate the distractions and the noise and keep us moving forward in a, you know, a positive, productive, healthy manner. Cause there, there's no shortage of stuff out there to stress us out and get us confused and off track. Yeah. 
One of the things we've also done, Amanda, we developed a student self-leadership program because a lot of young people feel victims, you know, and we want to teach them that they can be in charge of their own lives. Like the first thing that we deal with is what are the assumed constraints that people have put on them that, that, that aren't, and then what are their points of power? How can they really influence other people? And how do they build a, a, a core of relationship and, and support and all? And, and they, they really get excited about this because it starts to give them some tools rather than saying, ain't it awful? with them, you know, and saying, you know, it doesn't have to be awful if you're in charge of of who you are and what you want to be in the world. That's fantastic thinking. How do you push that out cost effectively? Because I'm sure you don't have time among your limited number of employees to go out and personally train these young people. How do you how do you get it into their heads? Well, we're we're training a lot of people and and we've put it into uh, our foundation, kind of the Blanchard Institute. So we're not interested in making money. We're looking at this is one of our ways. You were talking about giving back to the community. And so we're really trying to get uh, out there and, and uh, help people because, you know, I think there's four uh, areas you got to focus on. It's your people, your customers, you know, the bottom line, but also community. What are you doing to make a difference in your community? And this is one of the ways that we're really trying to make a difference in the community. If uh, if there's someone listening to the podcast who would like to access that material for some reason, either for a family member or for a school they're working with or a, a youth group they're working with, how would they do that? Yeah, they could go to our company website, kimblanchard.com, and then look up uh, the Blanchard Institute, uh, you know, about us, check out the about us section, and they'll be able to find information about the Blanchard Institute and our student self-leadership program. And is it a train the trainer thing where you all train educators or? Yeah. Yeah. Educators, community members can uh, learn how to deliver the program themselves and, and train students or youth group members or, you know, whatever communities they're a part of. This brings me to another aspect of trying to be more cost efficient as you're trying to push out new or not new, but just sound management thinking, uh, companies are starting to use apps for performance management and things like that. And they say, oh, this is so much better because it's more up to the minute and different people can comment on different people and it's all very interactive. And do those things work or should we just go back to just walking up to somebody or catching them on a Zoom for 10 minutes and giving it to them face to face? I would say the answer is yes to all the above. (laughs) Yes, they do work. Uh, We leverage those tools ourselves in our organization. In fact, we just uh, two weeks ago released a virtual reality simulation on building trust. How can you build and restore trust? And and the user can wear the goggles and go through a whole virtual reality simulation with with a character on uh, trust being eroded in a relationship and how they can repair it. And we've got apps uh, that that um, are companions to our our virtual training or face to face training that sort of gives real time tips and info and suggestions. And Ken's been preaching it for forty plus years. 
manage by walking around, right? Whether you're physically doing that or doing it virtually through Zoom or any other method, there's nothing that will ever replace, you know, the human connection. Leadership is all about people. At the end of the day, it's all about relationships and people. The technology, everything else, those are just methods. They're the means to the end. The end is how are you cultivating that relationship with your people? We did an interesting thing today, Amanda. We've broke all of our people in our company who have, uh, you know, leadership positions uh, into small groups, and and we're going to have them be a kind of a kind of a coaching support group for each other, and have them you know meet a minimum once a month for a couple of hours and saying how you doing? Is there any way you know we can help you and all so that. So people have four or five people that 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 uh, you know don't have responsibility over them or to them that can be there just to listen to them and give them uh, thoughts and and uh, and coaching. So we're we're because it's a uh, it's uh, tough out there uh, trying to manage people today in this crazy world. It is, it is. I tell you, I've been in part of mastermind groups for. 10 or 20 years. And I just think it's the most valuable thing to have a small group of people that knows you well, that has your best interests in mind and can just say at any juncture in your life, hey, how about do do this? Or it sounds like you're thinking this. What do you think? So helpful. So I think that social media either is or has been blamed for some of the extra anxiety and divisiveness that we have in the world right now. If you were the king of the world or if you had a magic wand and could change something about the way social media is structured or run or uh, anything, is there anything that you would recommend that we could do to make things better? Wow, that's a great question. Yeah, yeah. King of the world for social media. <laughs> Man. Yeah, well, I, I would uh, constantly share with people the importance of kindness, the importance of being supportive to others and 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 uh, say how can you use social media, you know, not just to go and jab people and all, but how can you encourage them and and support people and then also teach people. You know, I I remember when I first started teaching. You know, you'd get the evaluations and God, you'd have a hundred people that loved you and two people thought you were a real jerk, and you spend all your time thinking about those two people rather than saying, I've learned that. The people who are really negative, it's more about them than it's about you, really. Right. <laughs> Such a good point. That's, I, I don't have an answer for you, Amanda. I, I struggle personally with social media, you know, as a thought leader and representing our company. Engaging in social media is necessary for me, right? It's, it's a key way that I share uh, our message about trust and servant leadership. And so I'm very active on social media, have large followings and engage actively. And, and yet I don't, uh, like I stopped using Facebook personally several years back just because it, it wasn't benefiting me and my mental state and, and the way it caused me to react. And so I don't know. That's it's a it's a challenge, you know. It's it's going to be really interesting to see how the role of social media evolves over the next 10, 20 plus years, you know. And it's crazy to think it's really only been 
in our lives for what, you know, maybe the past 10 years? Not right? very long. Not very long at all. And it's dramatically impacted the social landscape of how we interact with each other. Definitely. It's a powerful tool that has been unleashed on the world and has not, not been figured out, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like we let the cat out of the bag and we didn't didn't uh, know which way it was headed. Um, Ken, you have several family members working with you, and you and your wife founded this company together. Has there been anything, any points at which being a family business has been difficult or has risen challenges that you might have advice for other people who are in family businesses? Well, uh, Peter Drucker was kind of a mentor of mine, and he said years ago, nothing good happens by accident. Put some structure on it. So when our son and our daughter and Margie's brother, who was born when she was a freshman at Cornell, joined our company all around the same time, about 25 years ago, uh, we uh, decided to form a family council and hired an outside consultant. And we meet for one day, once a quarter, as a family. And because uh, we don't want the business to goof up our family and we don't want the family to goof up our business. And so put some structure on it. So many people uh, just don't talk enough. And uh, so we we say you need to communicate, communicate, communicate. And, and, uh, and that's why I think we're constantly thinking of ways to do that with, with the people in our, in our company too. How do we let them feel comfortable to, you know, give feedback up the hierarchy and to help each other and, and, and also, uh, I just love that nothing good happens by accident. Put some, put some structure on it, you know, and, and, uh, you know, like as a couple, you know, having date night, you know, once every two weeks at a minimum where you go out for dinner and you can't talk about the job or the family, you talk about your relationship. Boy, you did that 26 times a year. What a difference it would make in your relationship. Great point. I think that some family businesses, they try to treat family members just as co-workers. Yeah. And that's not all it is. Yeah, no. There's a lot more than that. Yeah. There's so many expectations and perceived judgments that come with being a son or a daughter or a father or a mother or a brother or a sister that it's it's needs to be brought out in the open, just like what you described. Our son now has taken over the presidency of our company. And our daughter heads up the marketing uh, department. And Margie's brother is, is now the CEO. And so I'm the chief spiritual officer. I'm the head cheerleader. And, and, and Margie's the kind of the head of innovation. You know, she's always got new ideas. But mm-hmm. uh, but the, the leadership of the company is in the family. Yeah. And, and Blanchard is a very family-oriented culture, as you would imagine. There's, you know, my spouse works for the company, has worked for the company for 10 plus years. And we have lots of family members, you know, spouses, brothers, sisters, kids, you know, that all work in the organization. And uh, one of the things like just a funny example, my wife, we've had to say, okay, this is a husband wife conversation, not a work (laughs) conversation. right? So that's our code word, husband wife. And that's when it's uh, my wife tells me, Randy, don't be a manager and don't tell me what to do from a work perspective. Just listen to me. Just, just, <laughs> just empathize. And I'm like, okay, husband, wife, we got to get in that mode. 
So uh, for anyone who's working in a family-run business, what Ken said is so wise. Put some structure around it. Just don't let it take over your whole life and you know, your family becomes your business and your business becomes your family, that that's not good for anyone. Right, right, good. In one of your videos, um, Ken, you said that each person needs to develop their own leadership point of view. And you talked about how self-insight factored into someone's becoming a strong leader. How much diversity do you see in good points of view? Like, I'm sure there's bad points of view or suboptimal, but among the the ones that you think are highly effective, do you see a lot of differences? Well, we have a format where we ask people, uh, who impacted your life the most in the past? What did you learn from them? And then off of that, what values came out of that? And then based on that, uh, what are your expectations of people that work for you and what should they expect from you? Uh, And uh, so we have all of our leaders, you know, developing their leadership point of view. My wife, Margie, trains them all. And uh, uh, their people at workforce say, wow, this is really helpful to kind of know where you're coming from and uh, where where it came from and, and all that so we can start to uh, understand each other and, and all. And and uh, because we're all products of, of models and people that were, have, have impacted our lives, but you need to be clear with people what, what your values are and what what you expect of them and what they should expect of, of, of you. And so it's a, it's a very powerful thing. We have a master's degree program at the University of San Diego uh, that uh, goes from self-leadership uh, to one-on-one leadership where you're building trust, team leadership where you're building a sense of community and organizational leadership when you're building a culture and all. But uh, my wife and I teach the Leadership Point of View course in that a lot of people say it's the most powerful course, you know, because they really get to find out who they are. And then part of the requirement is that they share it with their people. Yeah, leadership is an inside-out proposition. What I've learned over my career is leadership is much more about who you are than what you do. If you get the beliefs, the attitudes, the values right on the inside, the actions will follow. And you'll you know, lead in a positive, helpful way. Uh, But it really starts on the inside. And you can't get that right until you go through an intentional process of really crystallizing what is your point of view as a leader. You know, most of us get into leadership roles just by virtue of a promotion. You know, it's just the next sort of natural step in our career to move into a management or a leadership role. And we don't give any reflective thought as to why we want to be a leader. And what we found is the best leaders really do go through that reflective process and they're crystal clear on their leadership point of view. That sounds like a great way to just get your head straight around why you're even there in the workplace and what you want to be and what you want to create. And I think that second step of communicating to others, here's what's important to me, and here's what you can expect from me, and here's what I hope to get from you. Because many people, uh, you can't expect everything from everyone. I mean, I've been in groups where we had a really helpful process at the beginning where people would say things like, I'm a great 
creator. I can think of ideas. I'm an ideator, but don't expect me to finish things. I just don't tend to do that. And if you know that, then you you tap into the person's best and highest form of contributing. That's right. That's right. One of the simple truths in our book uh, touches on that. And, and the truth is, those who plan the battle rarely battle the plan. And what we mean by that is when you are forming a team and you're tackling some sort of project, whether it's an organizational change effort or designing a new product or whatever it may be, when you solicit the input of everyone and you take into account their unique gifts, abilities, and talents, and then you weave those all together as a whole, that's when things really start to to work. You know, you get everyone involved in creating the plan and they're much more on board and they own it. And you're really leveraging the diverse talents of everyone rather than, you know, hitting on some cylinders and not on the others. Another simple truth that goes along with that is don't assume that you know what motivates people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, talk with them, you know, meet with them. When, one of the things around that uh, Drucker quote about nothing good happens by accidents, we, we have a process that we use and then we have our clients use called one-on-one where you schedule a one-on-one meeting once every two weeks at a minimum for 15 to 30 minutes and the manager schedules a meeting and the direct report sets the agenda and they can talk about anything they want. They can talk about a sick, sick kid who's hurting them coming to the, the office, or they can talk about a goal they're concerned about. And again, if you met with your people, you know, like that when, on one-on-ones periodically, what a what a difference. So, uh, uh, and I think now with Zoom, uh, you can even meet more easily with your people. Right? We don't have to even work to worry them they won't come in face to face. You want to do some of that, but but uh, you know, Zooming really helps you, you stay in touch. It definitely does. I have to say that I really miss live, real life people. <laughs> I, am, I am really just like, I think next time I get in a group, I'm just going to come hug everyone because I just really miss the personal interaction. But um, I have to say I've met more people, built more relationships, uh, connected with people from all over the world more in the last two years during the pandemic than ever before in my life. And that's been a, a, its own rewarding thing. So um, is there anything I should have asked you that I did not ask you all? What do we love most about this new book? Yeah, yeah. there you go. What do you love most? There you go. That's a good one. Ken, what do you love most? Well, I think it really is about simple truths and, and it's easy for people to access them and it's easy for people to share with others and, and all. And so I'm, I'm really excited about this uh, being a book that you can do with people rather than two people. Yeah. And I would say, Amanda, one of the things um, that I really like is there's 52 truths. And we've had people say, 52. Okay, what's up with that number? Is there something magical there? And we're like, well, the only magical thing is that there's one for each week of the year, right? And we really intentionally designed the book to be user-friendly. And it's written, as you know, you've read it in bite-sized, simple truths, where you can take one truth per week and really noodle on that. And we give you 
common sense suggestions for each truth, how to put them into practice. So the subtitle is Making Common Sense Common Practice. These are common sense, simple truths that most of us have either learned and forgot or we just learned and haven't really intentionally applied. We give you some step-by-step instructions on how can you apply this? And we include a discussion guide in the back that leaders can use with their team and say, hey, folks, let's talk about this particular simple truth. What are your thoughts? How, how are we all applying this? How are we not? What could we do differently? So it's a super user-friendly book that, that we're hoping will just be a sort of a constant companion for leaders to, to help them be a better servant leader. I totally agree. I love the book. Um, hey, speaking of that, there's one thing I really want to know because I've written a couple books and I found it to be pretty darn hard. <laughs> and I think I didn't make them simple enough. I just so admire the simplicity, not only of this one, but of One Minute Manager, which was just such an incredible breakthrough in simplicity. Can you make it look easy? Was it actually hard to to distill things into this level of simplicity? What was your writing process like? How did you get there? <laughs> we met Mike Spencer Johnson, who I wrote The One Minute Manager with at a cocktail party, and he was a children's book writer. His, he and his wife wrote a whole series of books called Value Tales. You know, The Value of Courage, The Story of Jackie Robbins, and The Value of Determination, The Story of Helen Keller, and, and all. And so Margie hand-carried him over to me and she said, you guys ought to write a children's book for managers. They won't read anything else. And uh, since uh, he was a children's book writer and I'm a storyteller, uh, we decided to write a parable because nobody had written a parable in in the management field. They had Jonathan Livingston Seagull and the Littlest Prince and all. And so uh, it just kind of became a style to how do you create a story around what you want to teach people because people learn from stories, you know, not from thick academic uh, books. And uh, so that's, uh, that's really, so this, our present book has really got 52 little stories, <laughs> but uh, that's when I started to, to try to write simply uh, there. And Spencer went on to write who moved my cheese and <laughs> other things like that. So it's a, it's been a lot of fun to, to uh, to see that. And uh, my mother said, why don't you write a book by yourself? Because of the 65 or plus books I've written, I've only written two by myself, one by on golf. So many people helped my golf game. I didn't know who to write it. And then my spiritual journey. But I'm a learner. I love to work with other people. And so, you know, writing a book with Colleen Barrett, who took over the presidency of Southwest, you know, when Herb sat down and Truett Cathy, who founded Chick-fil-A and, you know, uh, just uh, Gary Ridge from WD-40 and Norman Vincent Peale. I mean, what, what fun things to write fun books with people with creative ideas and then people in our company like Randy. It's just, it's just been a ball. Uh, I have a blog, Amanda, leadingwithtrust.com, that I've been writing weekly blog articles for nearly 12 years. I've got over 400 blog articles that I've written on trust and leadership and all sorts of management topics. So I was, uh, I've sort of trained myself over the years, you know, to write in 500, 700 word, 1000 word articles. 
Um, so that was a great head start for this book. But even as we were writing it, our publisher, uh, towards the end of the process, they said, okay, Ken and Randy, we love it. See if you can get it down to 300 words on your explanation of the simple truth. And anyone who's done any writing knows it's challenging. It's easier to write lengthy prose, right? You, it's easier to write a whole bunch of stuff on something you know. It's really difficult to distill that down into the bare bones essence. Um, what's the Oliver Wendell Holmes quote about simplicity? It's uh, I'm sure I'll get it wrong, but it's something to the effect of, I wouldn't give a fig for complicity for complexity this side of simplicity, but I would give everything for simplicity on this side of complexity, something like that, right? I thought you were going to say the Mark Twain one, which is, sorry, I wrote you such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. Oh, well, that, that's <laughs> even better. That, that's much easier to say than the one that I totally yeah, bungled. Good, but yeah. Everyone gets the idea. Simple, and, and that applies to the truths in the book. Don't mistake simple for easy. Don't mistake simple for easy. Simple is actually really hard in in practicality. So we tried to distill the complex topic of leadership, servant leadership and trust into some bite-sized simple truths. You'll spend a lifetime applying these principles in your leadership. Right. Well, the show notes will include a link to your book, a link to your website, and a link to your blog, Randy. I'm sure there's lots of great nuggets there. Uh, Is there anything else we should direct people toward? I think those are the two things. Uh, If they want to learn more about the Ken Blanchard companies, of course, they could go to KenBlanchard.com. If they want more info about the book, they can go to SimpleTruthsOfLeadership.com. And from there, jump to any other you know, bookseller that they'd like to go to. And I also have also have KenBlanchardBooks.com. KenBlanchardBooks.com. Yeah, look at all the all the books. I've just had a ball uh, writing books with other people and having fun. So you uh, inspire people, me. People say, you know, I recently celebrated the 59th anniversary of my, you know of my 21st birthday or more, and uh, I, people say, when are you going to retire? I'm not going to retire. I'm refiring. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? Actually, I saw that. I saw that name. Refire, don't retire. Refiring means stoking the fire. No, it's a. It's. A, I did a bunch of stuff with Zig Ziglar a number of years ago, and he invited Margie and I to his 80th birthday. And I called him. I was 65 then. I said, "Zig, you're going to retire." He said, "There's no mention of it in the Bible, except for <laughs> Jesus, Mary, and David. Nobody under 80 made an impact." I'm refiring, not retiring. <laughs> and so uh, I picked that up and dedicated that book to him because he had passed away. And so refire means uh, take a look at what you can do to re-excite yourself intellectually, physically, spiritually, and socially. I love that. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Ken and Randy. It's been a real pleasure. And we covered so much territory today. I just... Feel like I could talk to you for three more hours, but we need to wrap it up. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Amanda. Well, good to be with you. All right. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to Fearless Growth. You can find out more about the show at satilly.com slash podcast, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like what you've heard, please take a moment to write a review and give us a star rating. Reviews matter so much in helping others find us. Thanks for your support.